A salary is the drug they give you when they want you to forget about your dreams. Welcome to the Corporate Dropout Podcast. I'm your host, Alacia Citro. If you're sick of the corporate hamster wheel and looking to feel inspired and empowered to live a high vibe life as your own boss, you're in the right place. Dare to drop out in three, two, one. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about the business I'm launching. Do you have a business idea, but you don't know where to start? Or maybe you've started your own business, but you know there are boxes you need to check when it comes to taxes, finance, legal protection, marketing, and more. Same. That's why I founded Thea Collective. Named for the Greek goddess of light, Thea was created to light the path for entrepreneurs. We have the community, courses, and connections that will help every entrepreneur quantum leap and avoid costly mistakes. Learn from experts across professions and get the blueprint you need for your business. Text biz, that's B-I-Z, to 949-577-8709 or head to thea-collective.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Sam Lee. Sam is the founder and managing partner of E3 Ventures, a platform that invests, advises, and builds companies that unlock human potential. He is also the founder and CEO of Indie Collective, the place where top independent workers go to supercharge their careers. He is also an alum of WeWork, Goldman Sachs, and AOL. Sam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate you and the listeners dealing with potentially like baggage claim intercom announcements while I'm sitting in the Phoenix airport, but we're just going to roll with it, right? That's the life of a corporate dropout. That's exactly right. So Sam, I have to tell you, I am not one that really gets easily impressed, but your resume did that for me. So you did undergrad at UPenn, you have a master's from Harvard, and you began your career as a consultant to the World Bank before you moved to Goldman Sachs. Can you tell us about college, grad school, and the early years of your career and uh, what you wanted to be when you grew up, quote unquote? Absolutely. And I'll start by saying I'm a corporate dropout too, right? As as are all your guests. So I think we share that in common. Um, yeah. So just my, my quick 30,000 foot, uh, I started my career in international development. Right. World Bank is an international development organization. And I studied um, politics and international development at UPenn and Harvard. So that was kind of where where my heart um, found me in the early days of my career. And once I got into the bureaucracy of those organizations, I realized that that swim lane wasn't for me. It wasn't it wasn't a space in which I'd have my greatest impact. Um, so so I quickly changed lanes and that took me unexpectedly to Goldman Sachs. Um, where I had the pleasure of of meeting with um, a boss, now mentor friend, Dina Powell, um, who was leading at the time a lot of their corporate engagement, which was everything related to public-private partnerships, philanthropy, um, impact investing. She now is a you know managing partner and, and oversees a lot of their revenue. So so she's done a lot of things, but I joined her team as her chief of staff um, early in my career, and it was an incredible platform to translate what I had studied and learned in the public policy arena into the private sector. And that kind of launched me into a next chapter. And it was one of now many chapters of a career uh, that have spanned internet, real estate, big companies, startups, and now independent work. 
So you touch on something that I think is so interesting. I mean, I don't, I'm not naive enough to think that there's not bureaucracy at big corporations like Goldman or Google, right? Like we've all experienced that too. But like something you said, I just want to underscore is the fact that like you got out of public service because of all that red tape and moved into the private sector because of that. I mean, I'm glad that you were able to put your gifts and skills to use, but what's your thought on that? I mean, I'm, I wasn't really expecting to ask you this, but like... What, what would you say is really the downfall of a lot of these public organizations? And do you think that they're maybe losing out on a lot of talent just because of how many um, restrictions they have and the, and the bureaucracy that lies within? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, as a, as a senior millennial, as an older millennial, I'd say those in our generation and certainly younger generations have been really prioritizing the ability to grow and to contribute, right? We want opportunities to be stretched, to expand, to make bigger contributions. And I think, honestly, slow-moving organizations, whether they be public, private, or nonprofit, are losing out in this war for talent because they can't keep up. They can't keep up with the opportunities around growth and contribution that younger people so desperately crave. So that's, that's where I found myself at that crossroads. And I was fortunate enough um, frankly, with it's the first day of Women's History Month with an amazing mom um, who who had worked in the public sector but had transitioned into the private sector herself to say, hey, there's actually other options out there for you. Um, and it got me thinking more expansively. And, and that's when I took my first baby steps into the private sector. But but there's plenty of really amazing. I've, I've done work with pro bono work and and. and board work with nonprofits. So there's, there's nonprofits and public organizations that, that think fast, move quickly, and that create those opportunities. But honestly, I think they're, they're not in the majority. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think that that is one of the driving forces that people our age, like one of the reasons why they leave the corporate world is they want to make more of an impact. Uh, By the way, our mutual friend, Tanya calls it geriatric millennial, not senior millennial, but senior millennial (laughs) sounds a little nicer. Exactly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put, my, put myself in a geriatric category yet, but I'm probably that. That's probably what I am. Yeah. Um, you know, coming out of denial is the first step, right? Um, okay. In any event, so Sam, you went from chief of staff at Goldman to then head of business planning and operations at AOL. What was it that led you to transition from finance to tech? Yeah, absolutely. So after about two and a half, three years at Goldman, um, I had sunk my teeth into all sorts of things that I didn't think I'd ever experience. I had had the chance to actually work with people like Warren Buffett, Mayor Bloomberg, um, some pretty neat people. I did everything from their speech writing. I wrote words that they spoke at different conferences to getting to structure public-private partnerships that the firm was on the bleeding edge of. So it was it was a really, really neat experience. But by that two and a half, three-year mark, I realized that as somebody who wanted to build team, somebody who wanted to build and own a PL as a non-revenue generating individual and a big firm, I wasn't going to have those opportunities. So, so that led me to, again, think more expansively, um, to start speaking to headhunters, to talk about my superpowers with those folks and see how they thought I could translate them into those opportunities, into revenue and PL ownership, into team building. And that, that led me to shift into the internet industry. So why the internet industry? Well, that was one that I felt a native to, right? I was native to that industry. I'd used the apps. I'd you know, been in it since the get-go. Um, so I felt like as a user um, and as somebody who could probably contribute to other senior leaders in that space, I could eventually be groomed into one. Um, and I had the 
great fortune through a headhunter to get connected to this guy, Francis Lobo. So Francis is uh, a boss who I went, went to three different companies with. Um, you know, I met him honestly through, through good luck. Um, and I knew in the first conversation, the first interview that we had, that he was going to be at the very least a great mentor and boss would never have guessed he would have, you know, taken me to three companies or elevated me in two years from basically an individual contributor into, um, a general manager at a public company with a team of a couple hundred people and a hundred million dollar PL. So, so he was a really powerful mentor and boss. And, and the pivot was really, really a function of the fact that I knew my superpowers could translate into PL ownership and could translate into team building. And I just needed to find a new context in order to have the opportunity. Okay. So I have a, a sidebar question. How did you find your superpowers? I feel like this is something that people really struggle with. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm speaking to my alma mater, my high school on Thursday at our senior career day, which I'm super excited about. I do this every year. And the one book I buy every person that I can, and I'll at least recommend every listener who's interested is Bill Burnett's book, Designing Your Life. And let me just say, if there is a book to read this quarter, you've got a month left if you're listening to us live. Um, this is the book I would read. Bill Burnett is just an extraordinary human. He's the executive director of the Stanford Design School, so the foremost thinker on design thinking. And he takes that framework and applies it to designing a well-lived career and life. Um, and the book really walks you through almost like a workbook, mission, values, and superpowers, right? This, this question of how do you define a superpower? And what I love about his book is that he says, none of us have one career path. Right. We have a multiplicity of different paths we could walk. And it really just comes down to knowing the mission, the values and those superpowers, superpowers being the nexus of the things you're good at and that give you energy, because if they don't serve both things, they're not a true superpower. Right. If you're not good at them and they don't give you energy, if they're if you're good at something, but it drains you by God, don't. Don't invest a ton of energy and time into that. So he really walks you through the playbook of how to know the mission, the values, the superpowers, and then how to, as he says, prototype these paths, figure out the right conversations, do the trialing and error through internships if you're young or through job experiences or for dropouts like us through freelance gigs, right? Through jobs where you're working in the spaces where you think you could, where you could create the superpower, deliver it and, and have an impact. So, so that's how that's how I've kind of come to know mine. It's through doing the work, but also having the frameworks like Bill Burnett's to really reflect back. That is so intriguing. So how old were you when you read this book and sort of discovered that? Because it seems like a lot of people I know are figuring it out a lot later than they maybe would have liked to. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So I'd say, you know, I probably read the book the first time seven or eight years ago. So I was already, you know, in my thirties, um, in my, you know, early thirties when I read that book. Um, you know, I've had a couple of great mentors, and and I think it's those people that that spend time with you over time that are also really well positioned to reflect back and help you to see around the corners of of what is obviously innate in you and what you're you know really well suited to do that might be so obvious that it's missed. Right. Many of us, um, because we're so used to doing the thing that we're extraordinary at, or it just comes to us so naturally, we assume everybody is used to or natural at it. But in fact, that's, that's exactly where the diamond in the rough exists. It's, it's in those 
moments where you're in flow, when you're doing it because it's natural, that you're living in the superpower. And that's why it can't go unnoticed. So having a great mentor or a friend who's been with you for years, and this is an exercise I do with every new mentee. Um, when I was at WeWork, I had, you know, I, I would always say I had about 100 mentees every year. Um, and what that meant is that I had 100 people who I was lightly coaching, who I'd meet three times a year. And the first conversation, the first lunch I'd take them to at the beginning of the year would always have this Barbara Walters interview, where I would really just listen to their story from, as I would say, kindergarten to the present. And reflect back to them as they were telling their story, those key inflection points, those inspirational moments, those things that clearly had them at that nexus of what they were good at and and what gave them energy. Um, and it was through that reflecting back, I didn't have to know people well to be able to help them see more clearly through that through line of their story, what those things could be. So I think having a third-party perspective is useful too. A oh, big time. I mean... I- People are so blind to their own genius. Mm-hmm. I feel like you become more in tune with yours the more that you get out and experience things. And like the things that you think are so obvious and take for granted are usually what's really hard for other people and vice versa too. So love that advice. Yes. All right. So last question on your corporate career, and then we're going to pivot to your dropout story. And I would say of your resume, this is the area that I'm most interested in too. So you were at WeWork. They had a meteoric rise before COVID. You were there for four years. You were the SVP and uh, head of growth there. And you actually built their first growth team and led the cross-functional initiatives that supported their 20X growth. Let me read that again. 20X growth in revenue, 200 million to 4.5 billion in run rate and 40% reduction in churn. That's just like amazing to me. So tell us about that experience, some of your biggest lessons and anything else that you want to share about your time there. So... Such a, it was such a fun time. And I think WeWork has been heavily reported at this point. It's like, it's the rare person that I meet when they realize I worked at WeWork that doesn't reference the TV show or the documentary or the book or, so it's been widely reported. And I'll say so much of the reporting is spot on, right? It was a very wild environment. We were growing and moving very quickly, moving fast and breaking things as Mark Zuckerberg likes to say. Um, but it was also the time of my life personally. So career-wise, it was it was one of those amazing highlights. Um, you know, over those four years, I had the pleasure of working on a mission I really cared about. Um, you know, helping a lot of different companies and their employees to tap into not just space, but also a vibe, community, and a way of working that that suited them. Um, and importantly, get I got to hire hundreds of amazing people to my teams and and get to mentor and coach them. So it was a really fun period. I'd say in terms of learnings, having now worked at you know companies like Goldman who are at the top of their industry and riding high to turnarounds like AOL that were in the dumps and, and needed to be lifted back up to hyper growth companies like WeWork, I'd say it's so much of the muchness. It's so much of the same stuff. And life is really, it's not about when it comes to companies and building companies, it's never, it's rarely a lack of strategy. It's rarely a lack of strategy. More often than not, they are, the challenges we face are those around human dynamics, really getting people inspired, motivated, and mobilized to work in unison to get to great outcomes, right? So those are the bigger challenges because I've yet to work at a company and I'm a strategist. I'm also a general manager. 
we've yet, we've yet to not have the strategy and we had the growth strategies and we actually were able to execute on them because we certainly did grow. But when you're growing hand over fist, it's, it's about constantly motivating, mobilizing and, and getting people who are coming into the organization rapidly as you're growing, growing, growing to stay moving forward in unison. So I'd say that was my observation. And I think those are where my superpowers tend to lie. It's around strategy. It's around storytelling. Uh, it's about mobilizing and motivating people to shift into action on those important initiatives. Um, so I'd say so much of life and business is, is actually very similar. Um, and if you can get to the heart of these superpowers um, and then help other people to motivate and mobilize, you can get it really far fast. So let me ask you something. What would you say? Well, th- this is going to be a loaded question. If you had to like put it really simply, what's the secret sauce to mobilizing and motivating people in a unified direction? I, my guess would be that it's vision and values and mission, but um, what's your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? And culture, of course. Yep. So, so one of my favorite mentors, authors is Beth Comstock. If you if you know Beth, Beth was the CMO um, and and you know one of the senior leaders at GE for many years, and she led all of their innovation efforts. Um, she's now a big venture investor and advisor to New York City startups. So anyway, Beth Beth says in one of her books that strategy is merely story well told. I'll say it again, because when I read the book, I was actually flying from, I think it was Bangalore to Tokyo. I would kind of visit 40 cities, 25 countries every year with WeWork. I was constantly on the road. I was reading her book, um, and she said, strategy is merely story well told. And that hit me like a brick wall. So what does she mean by that? There's a whole chapter in this book on, on this topic. Really, to make strategy come to life, to get people to shift into action and get the job done, you need to mobilize them through storytelling because storytelling is what puts employees or just human beings in general into the driver's seat. It makes them protagonists because when they understand where they sit vis-a-vis the strategy and then they're, you know, they understand the why, the what, and the how, borrowing from Simon Sinek, they're motivated, they mobilize, they get stuff done, right? So that's where... I think fundamentally the most, one of the most important skills any of us can develop, um, and continue to develop to be really effective employees or corporate dropouts in this future of work. It's storytelling, right? Knowing how to communicate your story, knowing how to storytell in general to motivate and mobilize others, whether they be your employees or partners or clients, um, so that they're executing. You know, a common thread I'm hearing with that, as well as being able to see like that thread that would run through someone's career based on like the story of of their own life. It's so important to have a narrative, whether you're a company or whether it's you as an individual. That's the thing I notice when I'm coaching people the most. They have a really hard time knowing what their story is. Um, Mm. So I just want to underscore how important that would be. What other resources do you like in terms of helping people really sharpen that tool of storytelling any other books that you love podcasts yeah i would say um i come back to so there's so many there's so many great books and i would say most of my mentors i have had a number of like bosses and 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 live mentors so many have been books and podcasts so i would say you know that i'll come back to to beth comstack i'll come back to bill burnett i think those are great frameworks um and I'll just say, find find somebody who's been with you 
for for a chapter or for multiple chapters and and do that Barbara Walters interview. Ask them to listen to your story, right? And don't don't be contrived. Just tell your story from kindergarten to the present. Take an hour to do that. That's what I would do every single time I met a new mentee over a lunch. Um, and the things that you're going to uncover that they'll really help you uncover in that hour long conversation will be invaluable. Um, and and take note of those and then do some reflection on them. Get a journal um, at at those moments of inflection that they help you to identify, write down what you were feeling, write down what you were doing, think about those, those kind of intersectionalities of what you're good at and what you were doing and how you were getting energy from them. I think just a few of those reflections in isolation are going to get you a lot further faster around that narrative and also clarifying your mission. I love that. Such good advice. So let's talk about the dropout moment. So you left WeWork April 2020. So right after COVID hit, which impacted that company enormously, right? Because all of a sudden everyone has to work from home. So tell us what happened and how you became a dropout. Yeah, absolutely. Well, honestly, it was not a glorious exit from WeWork. Um, Context-wise, for again, for those who haven't watched the shows and read the books, we we attempted an IPO the summer fall of 2019, and it was a m- calamitous affair, to like put it lightly. Um, it didn't work. WeWork did not work, at least not to our plan at that moment in time. Um, and it meant, unfortunately, having hired hundreds of people um, and grown tremendously, we had to wind the thing back. And it was no longer about growth, which was my charter. It was really about getting to profitability as quickly as humanly possible so that another attempt at an IPO could be made. And fast forward two years later, the IPO happened, but it took that amount of time to get the company on track from a high, high, high growth mode to a profitability mode. So that's that's kind of the fast forward history. But I entered the workforce as an independent because I no longer had employment. I had to wind down those teams and then I had to step back because there just wasn't a job for anymore. We weren't doing growth. Um, so there were other things to do. There were other startups that were coming and knocking on my door because they were looking to grow. But rather than jump headfirst into the next full-time thing, I figured, let me let me take what I've been doing on the side for years, which was advising, investing, consulting, and just make it make it the foreground, make it my full-time thing. Um, and I did honestly think at the time that it was going to be a short-term vehicle, six months, no more than a year um, to try before I buy, right? To really get to know some CEOs, their teams, roll up my sleeves, make an impact and see where I could fit in for the long term. And it wasn't until I was six months into full-time independent consulting that I realized just how much opportunity there was in this space for me and I think just about for every every person out there. So like, what were my results in six months? What were the things that I saw myself achieving unexpectedly, I will say? First, um, within the six months, I was connecting with interesting clients. I was working on fun engagements. I had a portfolio approach to life, which is something that my mom, who's, you know, 30 years more my senior is doing now. She's on board. She's written a book. She's consulting. But I thought, oh, those are not things for me right now. I'm too young, right? I'm only in my mid to late 30s. So I started to find that I had this really cool portfolio. Second, this portfolio had me working about 20 hours a week. And in those 20 hours, within six months, I was making more than I did as a full-time executive in half the time, in half the time, right? So you can imagine traveling to dozens of cities, 20 plus countries a year. I had no personal time, which I was okay with because that was a 
very small sacrifice for an incredible experience. But I had a wealth of time. I had spaciousness to do some personal stuff that I had never done or had, had let fall by the wayside. So, so those things combined, the interesting portfolio, the great income, the spaciousness had me thinking, wow, this is actually a long-term path, not a short-term pit stop. And also, as I was speaking to more and more people like you and I, who had worked at great companies, who had developed their craft, what I found is that the potential was there for almost all of us. Um, but it really just came down to having the right building blocks, right? Cause once you know your craft, that is going to, that's going to work, right? You can do the client work, but building the book, right? Building the business and having the balanced life. Those are not things that necessarily come as naturally because we've not necessarily done it before. So, so that led me to launch my company, Indie Collective, which is really a modern MBA style program to help independence to to get those things, the practical playbooks, the mentors, and the community to do that. Tell us a little bit more about Indie Collective too, because when we talked about this, I, I think we met, what, a couple months ago maybe? And yeah. we were connecting about it. And it sounds like we have a lot of synergy between what I'm launching, The Collective and Indie Collective, although mine is maybe yeah. for more of like the entrepreneurs just getting rolling and like just starting uh-huh. out. Tell us a little bit more about your program and the offering and all of that. Plug away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you have a podcast absolutely. you to tell us about too, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to happy to share all the details. So so yeah, Indie Collective, as I said, was inspired because I needed it, right? I needed something just like this for myself. So I had the benefit when I went independent of already having um more than you know 15, seven and eight figure independent practitioners in my immediate network. People who were able to mentor me on the building blocks that make for a successful business, how to productize, how to price, how to streamline, how to go to market, how to do things that at least in their, in their entirety were not obvious. Cause I had always had the support, right? Just like all of us do at companies, nonprofits and in the bigger context. So, so I had the benefit of mentors and they were able to get me in six months to a place where I was achieving those outcomes. But when I spoke to tens, hundreds, now more than a thousand top independents, I found that too many people, even two, three, four, some five, six years in, are still struggling with some of these things that have been playbooked, that can be mentored against, that should not be left to trial and error. Because nobody should be leaving their success and fulfillment to trial and error if they've developed their craft, right? So if you know how to do your thing with excellence, the rest can be taught and should be learned from somebody that's done it, not by Google, because <laughs> there's too yes. much garbage. Out there, that honestly, and, the, right? and the time of Googling it, yeah. like you can f- probably figure it out, but how much time is that going to take you? You know, correct. And time correct. is money. And it's also being disrupted potentially, you know, and someone beating 100%. you to it. Time is money. Your, your time is value that you're not creating for yourself, for the market and, 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 yeah, I, I, I don't like to leave things to trial and error myself, if I can. There's some things that you have to, but uh, but but a lot of this stuff has been playbook. So so anyway, I needed this, and I created the first Indie Collective. I actually did it for free. I pulled together a dozen of these mentors, people I was already working with, who, who um, had been sharing their playbooks with me, and I pulled together 30 of my nearest and dearest people who had graduated or, you know, dropped out of great companies. And we did a 10 week experience together and I didn't charge anybody anything because I really wanted to make sure that what we were teaching, how we were teaching it, um, worked right. And when people from that initial cohort had pretty amazing results and more and more and more people were being referred, it, it naturally turned into 
what is now Indie Collective, which is a 10-week cohort-based experience that we that we deliver twice a year in the spring and in the fall. Um, 80% of our members are with us for a full year. And over the course of the year, they're getting that intensive set of playbooks um, on topics ranging from designing for independence. So think life design for independence to how you productize. So you stop trading time for money to how you differentiate your brand. So you reach win and, you know, work with clients on the right terms to value-based pricing, how you raise your rates by 50%, which is what our average members do in 10 weeks, to developing your go-to-market playbook. So you're attracting and winning the clients to streamlining your back office. So you hopefully save eight hours a week. So those are all topics that we cover. Um, And the cool part is that I really believe that independence shouldn't come at the cost of community. Right. In fact, when you do your independence, your work and your life in community alongside a group of people that you care about, you will be more successful and more fulfilled. Full stop. There's just no question because I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it now in the lives of the hundreds of people that I've had a chance to work with. And what we do in the 10 weeks is we don't just equip you with the playbooks and introduce you to the mentors. We, we actually surround you by 150 other extraordinary human beings, people that I've interviewed, people um, that have extraordinary backgrounds, but that also that want to be in a community. Uh, and the cool part is that when you've got that vibe um, combined with the actual playbooks, 80% of people do business together. They trade referrals, they collaborate on projects, they use each other's services. So it becomes this neat ecosystem, almost a family for business and life when we're building in this independent swim lane. That is exactly the vision that I have for Thea Collective too. Like it, that's been my favorite part of entrepreneurship is once you start making the connections and just like following the breadcrumbs, as I like to say, the yeah. amount of amazing people that you get to meet, like you, like I would have never met you if it hadn't been for Tanya and I wouldn't have met her if it hadn't been for Cameron. And so, yeah, yeah. that's the best part, the community for sure. And just sending business back and forth, helping each other out. hundred percent, hundred percent. So let me ask you something too, a little bit of like a tangent. Maybe this is a good thing to close on. I I have this feeling we're kind of like on the cusp of a like second economy, right? Like there's the traditional economy with like these big corporations. And then there's so many of us that have left the workforce that are doing our own thing. Like, what's your thought on that? Like, if you had to guess what the future of work and business looks like, do you think the independent movement will only grow or what, what's the, what's your outlook? Absolutely. Um, you know, when I think about the future of work, I think there's a few words that that come to mind. And these are words that I think are are winning hearts and minds in the context of companies as well as in the independent workforce. Um, I think flexibility is now the number one word. <laughs> so interestingly, you know, that was not even in the top five. If you look at Gallup, if you look at um, any of these kind of organizations that take surveys, um, flexibility wasn't even in the top five, even two years ago, but COVID has shifted hearts and minds and also just forced everybody from big and small and every other, every other format in between to work remote. And I think there's not been, it's not been easy, certainly for, for parents and for all sorts of people who, who have responsibility, um, and, and are sharing space for work and life, but it's also created a lot of flexibility and that's the silver lining. So I think that's going to be the first word that defines the future of work, whether you're in the context of a company in full time or whether you're doing your independent thing, people want more of it. And whether you're employing somebody 
fractionally or full time, you need to be thoughtful about how you're getting that, you know, uh, making that a priority for your employees and for those that you work with. So I think that's the first one. Um, I think the other the other word that's now on the rise is remote. I don't think we have to be in person, remote or hybrid. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, very prevalent going forward. And again, there's just such benefits. We've seen people like myself leave a New York City where I spent the bulk of my career and moved to Miami Beach, where I'm two blocks from the beach. I'm able to enjoy my setting year round and also work with all the same clients because <laughs> they're able to flexibly work with me over Zoom and I'm able to drop in to their office when I'm absolutely needed. So I think that'll be another another word. Um, the last word that I'd say has been has been important for so many years, but I think has come into greater focus over the last two years of COVID is mission. And mission has always mattered. Um, but when the culture confetti evaporated, right, when the office space, which I was selling at WeWork, the parties, the, the stuff that was happening in the confines of the four walls of corporate America evaporated quickly. A heck of a lot of corporate dropouts started to, you know, this great resignation accelerated because people realized, gosh, the thing I'm grinding on nine to five or now nine to six or seven or eight, because they were working around the clock, it wasn't particularly fun or mission oriented. They got bored pretty quickly. So I think mission matters and and the companies that have mission that are storytelling effectively, mo- mobilizing people around strategies in that mission um, are going to be the companies that prevail and that are winning this war for talent. And then I think people will continue to go independent. I think that is the form factor of the future of work is, is mission-driven companies and independent work. So 30% plus yeah, of the I, U.S. workforce is independent and it's going to be on the rise. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I almost feel like we're going to go back to like the mom and pop type of thing, but like the modern version of that. Yes. Like it'll be a lot of independents and smaller companies versus like huge conglomerates. Um, well, this was so interesting. Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Before we sign off, give a little teaser of what you're going to talk about in the business tip mini episode that drops tomorrow. And then tell our listeners where they can connect with you, find you and work with you. Absolutely. Well, we're going to be talking in just a minute about relationship building at scale. This is one of my favorite topics. um, And it really comes to the heart of knowing your story, activating your network creatively and staying top of mind. So we're going to get into the three ways that you can do that next. Um, In order to stay in touch, feel free to check us out at IndieCollective.co. It's spelled I-N-D-E collective.co. You can check out our podcast, which is the Modern Independent. Um, Wherever you listen to your podcast, we're interviewing every week um, seven and eight figure business builders who are sharing their playbooks so that you can get further faster, um, as well as our members who are walking the independent path alongside you and who are addressing these points of leverage in their business of life and getting further faster. So fun to be joined to you today. Yeah, thank you for coming on. This was wonderful. And I'm looking forward to the episode we're about to record. Everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you back tomorrow. This episode was brought to you by Thea Collective, the learning community I founded for entrepreneurs. Text biz, that's B-I-Z to 949-577-8709 or head to thea-collective.com. That's T-H-E-I-A-collective.com to learn more. 
Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help me get the word out about the corporate dropout by screenshotting and sharing this on social. I would appreciate it so much if you would subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review as well. And I do this show for you and I want to hear from you. So tell me, what is it that you want more of? Text me at 949-541-0951 or slide into the DMs at Corporate Dropout Official or Alicia Citro with two underscores. Until next time time.